Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. I'm Miles. Uh, I'm not our pastor, right? Uh, so our pastor, his name is Brandon Briscoe, uh, and I want to be the first to invite you back next week. Uh, for two reasons, uh, for three reasons. Number one, uh, our pastor, Brandon Briscoe, will be back in the pulpit, right? And we are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and it has been a blessing. Uh, God has used that mightily. Uh, and I'll warn you up front that, uh, man, it is challenging for your faith, right? Uh, he's speaking to a carnal church, uh, and there are just points that reign true in my life, and if you're listening, that reign true in your life as well. And so you want to be here with us next week as we dive back into the book of 1 Corinthians, I assume. Uh, but also, next week is Easter Sunday. And so you want to be here to celebrate with us, right? Next week we celebrate because Jesus Christ conquered death. Hello, somebody. It's a big deal. And because he conquered death, man, so did I, right? I'm in Christ. And so now, nonetheless, he lives and so do I. And so it's a big thing to rejoice. And third, I'm going to be here next week. And so you can hang out with me. Right? That's a good reason. Um, but in light of where we've been uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Pastor Brandon last week really talked to us about legacy. Right? And he told us that we have the ability right now to invest into eternity. Right? That there is this gold and silver and these precious stones that we have an opportunity to, to invest in and to, to lay up treasure in heaven. And so today we're going to get really uh, tactical and practical and talk about how that is lived out how that applies in our life. And so we are going to be in the book of Acts, uh, and we're going to consider uh, really just the person of Philip. Uh, and we're going to look at the method, the character of an evangelist. Uh, and I pray that this is just a, a practical uh, you know, a study in terms of how we can implement evangelism in our day-to-day -day lives. And so before we kind of dive into the meat of it, uh, I'm a guy that, that's obsessed with the whys, right? Lisa hates this about me because I'm always asking, I'm always asking why, you know? If, if we're doing something, what's the rationale behind it? And so I think it's appropriate today to, to, to start with whys behind evangelism. Why is this something that we should look at this morning? Why is this something that we should talk about behind the pulpit? Why is this something that we should prioritize in our lives, right? And so I'm just going to dive into uh, really four whys. These aren't uh, comprehensive, right? This doesn't cover all the whys behind evangelism, uh, but I hope that this is kind of a, a frame uh, that kind of, I don't know, frames the importance and significance of this study of Philip uh, today. And so without further ado, uh, the first why behind evangelism, and those of you who don't know what evangelism is, it's sharing our faith, right? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then, then he saved your soul from death and, and eternity separate from him. From, from, from hell. That's a big deal, and that's worth sharing with, with, with anybody and with everybody. And, and so evangelism is the act of taking this good news and sharing it with everybody everywhere, right? And so why evangelism? Number one, it's the only logical response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ proclaimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that is a big claim. And if he is who he says he is, if he is the Messiah, if he, he, he truly conquered death, then man, how could we not share that? In Luke 24, we get the testimony uh, of two men 
that were disciples of Jesus, right? They, they, they followed Jesus. Uh, they, they would have been there and sat under his teaching. They would have witnessed his miracles. Uh, they would have seen his glorious entrance into Jerusalem, like we were just looking at, you know, the, the, the palm leaves waving. They probably would have been waving palm leaves, into, you know, just inviting Jesus into Jerusalem, yelling and screaming Hosanna as they welcome in their Messiah. And within a week's span, they would have witnessed the, the tides turn from, from, from praise and, and welcoming him in to, to, to crucifying him on a cross. And so these di- disciples, they were devastated. They were confused. Jesus, who they thought was going to be their Messiah, this person who they, they perceived was going to free them from Roman rule and occupation, suddenly he, he died. Right? He suffered this horrible death on the cross. And they didn't have any room in their theology for a suffering Christ. And so they were confused, and we find them in Luke 24 on this road back to to Emmaus. And so they were devastated. They were leaving Jerusalem. They were leaving the other disciples. And on the way, this man starts walking with them, right? And they don't know who it is, but he starts explaining to them why it was needful from from Moses through through the prophets for for the Messiah to suffer these things. And, And eventually on this path, uh, they, they, they come to, to, to their resting place, and they begin to break bread with this stranger, and their eyes are open to the fact that they've been walking with Jesus, the resurrected Lord, this whole time, right? Jesus is with them, and what do they do? The only logical response to, 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 to acknowledging that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is immediately, right? It's dark. They just had a long journey. They're, they're tired. They've just been eating. Immediately, they drop everything, and they run to Jerusalem to proclaim Jesus Christ is risen. It's the only logical response to a risen Savior, right? To, to, to Jesus Christ conquering sin and death. It's the only logical response. Number two, because we're told to, Right? Like, when mom says clean the room, you clean the room. Why? Because she told you to. And because she's in charge. And so, you know, when the Bible tells us that the all power is given to Jesus in heaven and earth, and he says, go ye therefore, what are you going to do? I don't know. What are you doing? You know? So it's the only logical response to a risen Savior. But Jesus also told us, right? We see the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We see it again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And what's so profound about the Great Commission is we see that evangelism, it's central to the call, right? Evangelism is at the very center of it. And there's no qualifications for this call. If you've been born again, then you've been called. And what's so profound about these particular statements, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he he tells them to to be ye witnesses of me, right? And, And these are the last words that Jesus Christ shares with his disciples before he ascends into heaven, and so you can imagine, if, if you've got last words with, with people that are, are very dear and precious to you, you're going to make those last words count, right? And these are his departing words to his disciples. Hey, be about this one thing. Be about this one thing. Be witnesses of me to the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost, right? And outside of Jesus Christ, the next really most important person to ever walk this planet is, is Paul, right? This dude's responsible for like half of our New Testament. This dude's a big deal. And so we see Paul write this letter in 2 Timothy uh, to his son in the faith. And studying out their relationship, it's really, really beautiful. And so 2 Timothy, we see uh, Paul just pinning uh, this really beautiful uh, letter uh, to his son in the faith, Timothy. 
And uh, he pins some deeply profound truths and some deeply profound words. And in this letter, Paul is nigh unto death, right? He's, anti- he's anticipating uh, his death. He's in prison. And so these are the last words that he'd be pinning to his own son, right? And so again, we can reflect just emotionally on the significance of this letter. This is a big deal. A father about to die, he, he sees his death is coming, and he writes a letter to his son. Uh, I think about Justin Trotter. Uh, he, he tells a story about receiving a letter that he got from his own father um, after his father passed away, uh, and how big of a deal that was. You know, he could hear his father just do the writing, right? And his dad left him with some profound wisdom and things to, to, to really set the trajectory for the rest of his life. And so that's what, what Paul's doing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And, and in the very last chapter uh, of his last words to his son, he, he pens in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5, but watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, right? And the time of my departure is at hand. He, he sees that his death is imminent, Right? And very sensual to the last charge, to the last advice that he's giving to his son in the faith is do the work of an evangelist. This is a crucial aspect of making full proof of your ministry, right? These are the parting words that both Jesus and Paul left to their disciples. This is a big deal, right? Number three, why evangelism? Because it's the only reason that we're left here. This is your purpose, right? Uh, We're studying through the the book of Mark right now in my Bible study. And one of my favorite passages in the book of Mark is looking at uh, this man that has these many unclean spirits, right? Uh, His name's Legion. And and what's cool is Jesus ventures into Gentile territory. And this is very atypical for his ministry. And he confronts this man whose life is just completely messed up. He's tormented. He's got these unclean spirits. The dude's naked. Like, it's all sorts of, you know, just defilement and debauchery. And Jesus meets this man where he's at, and he heals him. And it's incredible. And this man, he responds beautifully by saying, Jesus, let me follow you. Right? He says, Jesus, you're going home. I want to go home with you. And Jesus' response in the text is, Howbeit Jesus suffered him, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and how he hath compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Right? And this is a sad passage because you're like, man, this guy's just healed. He wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus sends him right back home to do what? To, to preach the gospel this message of compassion at the feet of Jesus Christ, his Savior. And y'all, at the point of our salvation, at the point of our healing, instead of Jesus, like Brandon said, just instantly just rapturing us back home to be with him in heaven forever, he left us here with the sole purpose of going to find our friends and our family and to tell them how great things the Lord hath done for us and how he's had compassion on us. Right? Isn't that awesome? And this man, we see that he was obedient in publishing this message in Decapolis. Deca means 10, right? So he goes into 10 cities, publishing the fact that Jesus did this great miracle in his life. And he found compassion at the feet of Jesus. 
Think about Pastor Mark Trotter. Uh, you know, like Alex was saying, just picturing us all before God singing together. And Pastor Mark Trotter would talk about, you know, in heaven, you know, we're going to sing better in heaven, right? Man, actually, everything that we do is going to be better in heaven, right? The food's going to taste better in heaven. Our voice is going to be better in heaven. Like, my muscles will be bigger in heaven. Like, <laughs> heaven's going to be awesome, right? And so he builds this up. What, what, what is heaven going to be like? And at the end, he, he, he hits you with this truth. The only thing that won't be better in heaven is the fact that you'll never be able to share the gospel with a lost soul ever again, right? Once you get to heaven, you'll, you'll never have the opportunity to, to open the word of God with someone that doesn't know who Jesus Christ is and to show them that there's a savior for their soul that loves them so much that he laid down his life for them. Never again. And so his conclusion was, man, if everything's better in heaven but that one thing, well, if you're not engaged in that one thing, you're better off dead. Oh, oh, man, right? It's the only reason you're here. Four, because it's the power of God and salvation. Why evangelism? It'll save someone's soul. Hello, somebody. That's, that's awesome, right? If no other reason is compelling, then I pray that you realize that the gospel message is the power of God and the salvation. And as Paul said to the church at Corinth, some have not the knowledge of God I speak this to your shame. Oh, man, it's our responsibility. This has the power to save souls. We have the solution that the world is looking for, right? We have a message of hope, of love, of purpose, of life. And if we hold back this message, then we of all men are most wicked, right? And so these are some whys that just frame the conversation of why should we be considering, why should we look at evangelism today? And the last why that we'll kind of look at this morning is, you know, we're talking about evangelism. So, so why Philip? Right? Why are we doing the case study on Philip? Well, as we look at the life of Philip, we see that he is the prototype. He's the only individual in your Bible that's referred to by name as an evangelist. And not just an evangelist. In Acts 21, verse 8, he's referred to as the evangelist, right? And so get this down. We have a key picture Philip pictures the life of a Christian living out the mission. Philip pictures the life of a Christian living out the mission. I think that's on the next slide, maybe. Maybe not. And that's the one thing that Jesus left us here to do. So this uh, dude, Philip, he's a, a big deal, right? We looked at the, we're going to look at the characters of an evangelist. Uh, and, and who we ought to be uh, through this kind of case study of Philip. And we're going to look at an evangelical encounter that Philip has with an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and Lord willing, it'll show uh, really some practical and tactical uh, approaches uh, to, to implementing evangelism in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and again, the, the hope is that this wouldn't be theory, right? That we wouldn't just learn some things that happened way back when, but we'd see some key insights and principles that we can apply to our lives today, right? And so uh, in Acts chapter 6 is where we're introduced to Philip. Uh, and we're going to be hanging out in Acts chapter 8 primarily. But in Acts chapter 6, uh, we are introduced to Philip. And, and we don't know a lot about Philip. Uh, you know, we can look uh, at his background. 
Well, no, we can't look at his background, right? There's nothing about his upbringing. There's nothing about uh, his education. There's nothing about his personality. Uh, but this passage, it reveals a great deal about his character. In, in chapter 6, we're introduced to the first conflict that arose within the early church. As the gospel went forward to all people, uh, we see the church beginning to, to reflect this diversity, right? And so we see these Grecian and Hebrew background believers that are coming together to worship together, which is awesome, right? We've got Jews and Gentiles worshiping, you know, God together in one place, which is a big deal. But their cultural differences, their, their, their passionate preferences, they, they start to become glaring, right? And over time, it becomes very apparent that these Grecian widows are being neglected. And this is a, a big conversation, right? And it's very relevant, I think, today about race relations and, and cultural divisions within the church. Uh, but to keep us from going down that tangent, the result of this uh, conflict was the nomination and ordination of, of deacons, right? They, they pick out these uh, servants uh, in the church, and, and they put them to work. You see, the apostles, they were overwhelmed with ministry. God was adding people daily to the church such as should be saved, right? So ministry was booming, and there were more tasks to do than they had capacity for. They couldn't address every issue that was arising. They, they, they couldn't do all the service-oriented projects and work that were arising in their ministry. And so they recognized the need. And so they selected seven proven leaders, and they, they promoted them to recognize offices within the church with the sole intent to serve the body. And this is where we're introduced to Philip. He's one of these seven men. And in verse 3, uh, it tells us about the qualifications of these seven men. These men were to be of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and full of wisdom. For Philip to be numbered amongst these men speaks his upstanding character and his reputation amongst them, right? And I want you to see that out of the thousands of people, literally thousands of people that are being added to the church, everyone collectively agreed on these seven men. They clearly had a reputation uh, for, for character and godliness amongst all of them. And so is this you? Do you have a testimony of an honest report? Are you full of the Holy Ghost? Are you full of wisdom? That's Philip's testimony. And so an evangelist has a reputation of great character and godliness. That's really our key point, number one, uh, for the, the character qualities of an evangelist, is, man, do you have a reputation of great character and godliness? This is a crucial aspect of an evangelist. If your actions and words don't reflect the nature of the gospel message, then your witness will be a walking contradiction and have no effect. Again, if your actions and words don't reflect the nature of the gospel message, then your witness will be a walking contradiction and have no effect. As evangelists, we must consider our report amongst others. Is it honest? Do you yield your life to the Holy Spirit or to your own will? Do you speak foolish words or do you speak words of wisdom, the words of God? So we could spend all day on these qualifications, uh, but for time's sake, uh, I just want us to see that it tells us a great deal about Philip's character, right? It tells us a great deal about Philip's character. Uh, but do you ever consider what it was that Philip would be doing? Right, Philip, he got elected to, to be a deacon. Blake, you're a deacon, right? Yeah, I don't know. No? I mean, I serve, but I'm not, I don't have the office. Okay. Bad example. You were a deacon. <laughs> So, you know, you think of deacon, they've got the, the, this, uh, this office in the church, and it sounds important, right? 
It sounds kind of sounds kind of sexy. Like, oh man, no. Call me Deacon Deacon Cheadle, right? It's like I'm a, I'm a big deal, right? But but contrary to popular belief, Philip wasn't set aside and given to the sexiest ministry in the church, right? And in verse two, it explains that the, the the twelve apostles, there's no reason that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. Right? That, that clues you into the work that they're electing these deacons for. So guess who's serving tables? Right? The, the 12, they were given continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. And so our boy Philip was engaging in the physical and personal acts of service towards the body. Right? He was doing the grunt work. He, he was doing these things that happened behind the scenes that no one else wanted to do, that people often just don't notice or really appreciate. And we have to assume that Philip did it with excellence because in verse 7 it tells us the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Awesome, right? Awesome. And so I'd like to make a few observations about these results. Philip wasn't necessarily doing the work of an evangelist here. You're like, what does this have to do with evangelism? He, you know, he's mopping floors and you know, serving tables. What does that have to do with evangelism? Well, it has everything to do with evangelism, Right? Uh, th- this act maybe wasn't an act of evangelism, but it has everything to do with the character of an evangelist. He was serving within the context of the local body. And his service within the body of Christ surely would have edified the members. But notice it also led to multiplied disciples throughout all of Jerusalem. He freed up the apostles to be given to the word and to prayer. And I believe with all my heart that the word of God increasing is a direct result of the apostles being given to the word. And so the number of disciples being multiplied was a direct result of the apostles being given to prayer. And as you serve the body, Lord willing, it frees up Pastor Sam. Lord willing, it frees up Pastor Brandon so that they can be given to the, uh, to the work of the word and to the work of prayer. But it also allows you to own the ministry, to personally invest in the lives of those who are entering into the fold. You see, Philip, he experienced the love of Christ. And Christ's love towards him compelled him to supernaturally love others. And so are you someone that's given to loving and to personally serving the body? All right, this is an incredible thing about Philip. He loved people well, in particular those of the household of faith. Those of the household of faith. So an evangelist loves and serves within the context of the, the body. Think about uh, Brian Clark. He's one of the, the great evangelists that I know, Right? And before he was ever a church planter and missionary in London, he was a janitor at his local church, right? He found ways to, to, to serve within the body. He did the, the physical acts of service that, that no one cared about, that no one wanted to do. He was cleaning the bathrooms, right? But man, he, he wanted to be there. He wanted to be around the pastors. He wanted to grow. He wanted to serve people in such a way that God could use. And next thing you know, he's on the mission field, planting churches, as an evangelist, we must humble ourselves to the service of others. And this is an unnatural thing to do because we are selfish and self-centered by nature. But we must learn to serve the body of Christ. Our service within the body of Christ will free his hands to extend to the lost world. And so we ought to be the first one here on, on cleaning days, right? Think about Andy Cardona. This dude leads our Bible study so well. And whenever he opens up his house, this dude's got, you know, like a five-course meal prepared for us, right? And he loves it. He loves having us in his home. He loves preparing food for us and, and making sure that, that we're fed. It's a way that he loves on us. But man, do you bring snacks to Bible study? 
Or do you assume that just someone else is going to do that? Think about guys like Taylor Lyon uh, who, who see me. Like, Taylor, like, I know that he, like, really sees me because he's the type of guy that says, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm doing well. And he stops me and says, no, like, really, how, how are you doing? He, he really wants to know. He cares about me, right? Oh, man, we need people like that in our lives. Are you one of those guys, right? Do you truly care for the body? And so, again, what does all this have to do with evangelism? Uh, You know, it has everything to do with evangelism. Because if we can't love God's people, how are we going to love the lost world? In Galatians 6, verse 10, it says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them that are the household of faith. And so you'd think that in considering an evangelist, you'd start with their relationships with non-believers. But the truth is, until you establish proper relationships and invest in those within the household of faith, it's going to be very difficult to invest in the lost world, right? And so we need to get established. We need to get plugged in. We need to get rooted here. Because as we do, as we allow our roots to grow deep, man, we, we can grow up and out, right? In Acts 8 is the next time we see Philip show up. It says that Saul was consenting unto his death. Ooh, right? Things, things are changing. You know, Acts 6, it was all hunky-dory. The, the, the church is growing. Disciples are multiplying in, in Jerusalem. This is all great. We get to Acts 8, and now we got Saul consenting unto his death, right? At that time, there's a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things that Philip spake hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsy and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Wow. So a little background for this passage. We see rising persecution against the church. Stephen, one of the seven uh, that was serving alongside Philip, we see he, he was this incredible witness. He's an incredible evangelist, right? And he was killed for his witness. And so again, the, the persecution became severe, and it forced the church to scatter. And God uses this persecution to cause the, the gospel to spread and to develop new leaders within the church. And so in verse 5, we see Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ unto them. Uh, but I think it's worthwhile just to, to pause right here and to consider this, because Philip, he, he just lost one of his best friends, right? You think about it. He, he's elected with this guy, and, and they're serving in ministry together. I think about guys like Alex and, and Uriah that, that I was serving and I grew up in ministry with. And so Philip, you know, he, he's serving in ministry with Stephen. They're, they're both numbered in the seven deacons, and they're serving together. And, and he's killed for his witness. He's killed for his faith, Right? And so this would have been horrible. This would have been devastating. 
And so, you know, his friend dies for preaching this message. And you consider what Philip's response was in light of this message that, that led to the death of his friend. He, he just keeps preaching it, right? Like, it's crazy. Like, hey, this thing led to your friend dying, and, and he just keeps preaching this message. Uh, but not just that. He, he keeps preaching, but he goes down to Samaria. And in doing so, he'd be going and crossing cultural barriers, right? He'd be going to people that were culturally despised by the Jews, uh, but it was worth it. You see, Philip, he was used to, to ministering cross-culturally in Jerusalem. And when we think about the, the first ministry that he was given to, is reconciling conflict between Grecian and Hebrew background believers, right? He was doing FOI. He was doing the FOI, right? And so it prepared him perfectly to go to Samaria, to cross cultural barriers, because he was doing it within the context of the church already, right? It was only natural for him to continue to heal cultural barriers through the preaching of the gospel. It's only natural. And the message that healed these divisions was a simple one. He preached Christ. Here we learn that Philip was not only a man of upstanding character and godliness, he not only loved those and served those within the context of the local church, but he loved and served those without. He was willing to cross cultural and geographic barriers and stuck with a simple message, the message of Christ. And so an evangelist loves and serves those outside of the body of Christ, right? Their physical and their spiritual needs. These characteristics should Go without saying, but the reality of this is proven under pressure, right? It's like, oh, yeah, this is, this is simple. This is easy. Everybody knows this stuff. Yeah, well, what happens when the church is being persecuted? When your buddy just got slain for preaching the gospel, right? The, the, the reality of this is proven under pressure. Remember the context of this passage. Persecution is ramping up against the early church. Physical violence was at hand. For an evangelist, opposition and persecution should only deepen the burden and desperacy to share this message. For an evangelist, opposition and persecution should only deepen the burden and desperacy to share this message, right? So when trials come, are your concerns carnal or spiritual? It's revealing. Are you concerned with souls? Philip was absolutely concerned with souls. In the face of persecution, he preached the gospel, and the result was revival in Samaria. The result was revival. Think about the example uh, that we're seeing right now. So in this room, we have people that are preparing to go on a mission trip to Hungary and Romania, right? That's crazy. Why would you go to that part of the world right now? Have you guys been watching the news? I mean, there's a war that's breaking out, Ukraine and Russia. It's Why would you go? Oh, man, for the team, it's like, this is the perfect time to go. I mean, they're hurting people. They're wrestling, they're displaced. Like, you know, for, for, for many, for most, it's like, man, that's a reason not to go. The world's like, do you see the problems over there? For the evangelists, yeah, that's why I need to go, right? And so we need to be praying even now for the team that's preparing to go to, to Hungary and Romania. They're endeavoring for a great work. They're trusting God for souls. They're trusting God to meet people in the midst of their conflict and to show them the light of Christ. Wow, wow. So, you know, a soul winner has to love souls. Like, that's key point. Write it down. If you don't love souls, like, consider yourself. Who are you? Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. Laid down his life for you. A soul winner has to love souls. 
And so, man, I pray that these traits would be true of our lives. We've been called to be an evangelist. And I want to make sure that you see that this call has nothing to do with your personality. I think that a lot of us can, can write off this call in our lives to be an evangelist and say, man, you know, I, I would do that, but I, I'm just not very charismatic, right? I just, personally, I'm not super outgoing. I don't have the, the type of personality that, that, that lends to evangelism, right? But as we study out these characteristics, it has nothing to do with our personality again, right? It doesn't say, man, you know, He's charismatic, so he's really, really good at this, right? It doesn't require us to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. Amen. Some of us think, man, who am I? I can't share the gospel with anybody. I don't know who Melchizedek is, right? <laughs> can't do it, <laughs> right? It doesn't require us to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible, but it does require us to have a good and godly reputation for us to care for those within the household of God and for us to care for those outside of the household of God. It's simple, right? You are qualified. You are qualified. And these qualities, they can't be faked. They can't be conjured up. The character of an evangelist, uh, you know, uh, really shines through in, in, in the person of Philip. And so we're going to consider, we're going to look at uh, maybe, the, you know, a key evangelical encounter uh, in, in Philip's life and trust God to teach us from that. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to kind of dig in here. So we've considered why evangelism. We've looked at the, the character qualities of evangelism. And we see that it's a call for everybody, right? I think the big thing I want you to see in the character qualities is that it doesn't require you know, a certain amount of knowledge about the Bible. It doesn't require for you to be charismatic in your personality. It requires for you to be saved and to have a heart for God. And if you have a heart for God, then you're going to have a heart for God's people and for his mission, right? And so what does this look like practically in our lives? In Acts 8, <clears throat> verses 26, it says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopia's, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot and read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near, join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I? except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture, which he read, was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before her shear, so opened he not his mouth. And his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, Thou mayest. And he answered and said, 
I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Awesome. Awesome, right? And so this is the encounter, right? We see Philip, he leaves a very fruitful ministry in Samaria. He goes and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. And, you know, to us it's like, man, just the the door's just opened for, for this gospel conversation, right? And it's incredible. But there's some key insights that we can learn from this encounter. Uh, that we can implement in our day-to-day lives, that we seek God to, 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 to reach souls, right? To, to, to share the gospel. And, and the first one, kind of the, the, the primary method uh, of a successful evangelist, uh, we're going to see it actually has nothing to do with strategy, right? We're going to debunk that completely. It has nothing to do with strategy. It has everything to do with obedience. And this is big, right? Because we can over-strategize our things in our head, Right? We can think things through and how it's going to go and i got to have this prepared. And we can think it has everything to do with, with who we are, what we can do, what we can think of, how strong we are, how smart we are. And it's not true. It has nothing to do with strategy, but it has everything to do with obedience. And we see this in verse 26 through 29, right? And so let's consider the nature of obedience. What does this look like in our lives? The nature of obedience requires ears to hear. Right? Obedience requires ears to hear. We must be sensitive to how God is speaking into our lives. And this requires an intimate walk with the Lord and his word. Philip heard the angel say, arise and go in verse 26. Right? You heard him clearly. Arise and go. And we hear Jesus speak to us through his word daily. If you're paying attention, if you only had ears to hear. Right? But Philip was also sensitive when the Spirit urged him to join himself to the chariot in verse 29. And just as the Spirit pokes and prods us today to join us to to, to strangers, to peoples, I think about uh, when me and Lisa went to to Dallas. We were just walking around on campus, and I saw this lady named Corinne. And it's like I couldn't ignore it. It's like, Lisa, we got to talk to this person, right? Look, she's standing by herself. I don't know, just the Lord pressed it upon my heart. And we did, and now she's like a little sister to us, right? Uh, and she got saved on that, that trip. Uh, guys, she's going to be here in June. She's actually moving to Kansas City. Yeah. How cool is that, right? So she, she got saved and realized that, that she needs to get established in the Word. And, and so she came up, and she visited for fall retreat. And you guys loved on her so well. And she heard the preaching from Pastor Brandon, from Pastor Dan. And she said, man, God is doing a great work here. I need to grow. <laughs> I need, you know, fathers and, and mothers in the faith that can teach me what it looks like to, to, to have an intimate walk with Christ. And y'all, now she's moving. She's going to be attending UMKC. Uh, and she's going to be a part of this church, right? How awesome is that? Man, are we sensitive to the spirits leading as he po- uh, pokes and prods us to join ourselves to the chariots of people that we see every day? Every day, you know you ignore those. I know I ignore those, right? Like, I should talk to, but, but. The nature of being obedient requires a hearing, but also requires action, right? It's not enough to read your Bible, to, 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 to know Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Like, you can recite it, you know? It's not enough to know who Melchizedek is if you don't apply it in your life, Right? It's not enough to to feel the the poking and prodding of the Spirit to share your faith with your classmates and friends. We actually have to do it. We actually have to open our mouths. 
the nature of being obedient, it requires hearing, it requires action, uh, but I think it's also needful to, to div- give the disclaimer that it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always make sense. Obedience doesn't always make sense with our eyes. It would have been easy for Philip to justify why he shouldn't obey God and go, right? He just got to Samaria. As you study that out, Samaria was the epicenter for Christian activity in that day and time. Once he got there, he started preaching the gospel, and y'all, the whole city got saved. They're like just busting out of the seams, so much so that we've got the apostles, James and John, that are coming down just to get in on the action. They're like, wow, what's happening here, right? And so people are fleeing to Samaria just to give backup help. Ministry's booming. He's got more ministry than he knows what to do with. Why would he ever leave that? That doesn't make sense. To go to the desert, south to Gaza? Why would he go south? I mean, have you read the Bible? Don't go south. What's he doing? (laughs) Right? But he's sensitive to God's leading, and he leaves a situation that seems ideal. I think about Pastor Andrew Ong. I think about Pastor Dan Renault. For them to leave here, why would they? You know, Dan had a, a booming ministry. Andrew, man, you guys have seen how, how, how blessed we are by, by the ministry of Andrew Wong. Why would I ever leave here to go to, to a communist country in Vietnam that doesn't have, like, cheeseburgers at every corner? Right? Like, he's probably got to work really hard to find a good shake and cheeseburger. That's rough. But he's sensitive to the spirit. God is leading. He's poking and he's prodding. <clears throat> It'd be uncomfortable, right? Remember, Philip was caught up in revival in Samaria. So why would he leave that, this thriving ministry, to go to the freaking desert? The desert is a dry place. The desert is a place where nothing grows. It's a place that's not comfortable. It's a place that's not densely populated. This direction makes no sense to carnal eyes, right? Which is why we have to look with spiritual eyes. We have to see with spiritual eyes. And so, the, the first method of an evangelist has nothing to do with strategy and has everything to do with obedience. The next method of a successful evangelist is to get in the chariot. Get in the chariot. We see this in verses 29 through 31. The Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him. And heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And so getting in the chariot, what does that mean? It really, it just means planting yourself into someone's life, right? And this is maybe the most difficult thing, right? And so let's look at, let's study the nature of getting in the chariot, right? The, the, the nature of getting in the chariot begins with the approach. So before we can ever get in the chariot, we must approach the chariot. And, and oftentimes, basically every time, this is the hardest step. How do we insert ourselves into someone's life? How do you do that? How do you just insert yourself into someone's life? You, you see a stranger there, you want to talk to him. You see you know, your coworker, and, and you want to take it from a working relationship to, to spiritual conversation. How do you insert yourself into someone's life? Ugh, like that, that seems difficult, right? But let's look at Jesus' example. In John chapter 4, we see a lady from Samaria who's just hanging out at the well, right? And, and Jesus inserts himself into her life by asking a simple question, right? Just asking a simple question. Hey, get me some water. 
Boom, give me some water, right? And so we see that this simple question leads to, to incredible ministry opportunity. And just a, a side note, I don't think it's a coincidence that revival took place in Samaria with Philip. I believe with all my heart that they were already primed and ready to receive the gospel by the Messiah himself, right? By the Messiah himself. And so we see that Jesus asked this question. It opened up conversation with this lady at the well. In this passage, Philip also asks a question. He, he ran up. He hears a eunuch is reading Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and asks the eunuch if he understands what he's reading, right? And this is not a rule, but I believe that there's profound wisdom in learning to ask good questions, right? To be skillful in question asking. And I think this is contrary to the notion of an evangelist, right? Or to our perception of an evangelist. You know, we see people that, that stand on corners and, and, and that preach at people and, 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 you know, preach their message at people. They're, they're not asking them questions. They're, they're telling them information. Uh, but asking questions uh, gets uh, really to, to, to a more intimate setting, right? Uh, immediately it breaks down walls. Uh, asking questions, it's not natural because immediately you're turning over the platform, you're turning over to the floor for someone else to talk. And as the evangelist, you're saying, I have the message, right? I should be talking to you. And so asking questions seems contrary. It runs in the face of that. Uh, but it's so, so important. We get to enter into people's lives by asking simple and profound questions. And oftentimes we find that these questions can give us key insights into their lives that we'll be able to speak into later. Right? Asking simple questions gives people, us key insights into people's lives that we can speak into later. Think about Brandon. Uh, you know, I was a student at Lee St. West High School where Pastor Briscoe taught. Uh, I graduated, I ended up at UMKC, uh, and one day he just reached out to grab coffee. And so we grabbed coffee, and really it was just Brandon asking me questions to hear about what was going on in my life. And, and that gained him. Uh, an opportunity to, to know who I was, what was going on, uh, the, the, the different things that were happening in my life, to gain my trust, uh, you know, and, and so he could speak wisely into my life whenever the, the opportunity presented itself. And so through having coffee, time after time, he had an opportunity to, to invite me to be a part of what's happening here, and it changed everything, right? It changed everything. And so... Uh, Oftentimes, it doesn't look like us inserting ourselves in people's lives forcefully or assertively. So often, getting in the chariot, that approach just looks like asking simple but profound and, and good questions, right? Hey, I, I don't actually know who you are. Like, what's your story? Man, just let them go. You'll learn so much about who they are, what they're going through, where they've come from, right? The nature of getting in the chariot Looks like the approach, but also looks like open doors. And so this is something that requires some patience, right? It begins with the approach, and that looked like asking questions. Uh, but ultimately, we want to be like Philip, and we want to gain access to the chariot, right? Philip started on the outside of the chariot asking if he understands what he's reading. By the end of it, he's sitting down in the chariot with his Ethiopian eunuch, right? How do we get a seat? <laughs> How do we get a seat at the table? And this actually oftentimes looks like asking questions as well. Only this time, instead of you asking the question, it looks like them asking the question, right? 
We see here uh, in this conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch that the eunuch completely turns it on him. Hey, will you sit with me? (laughs) Hey, Hey, who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about some other man? Hey, what doth hinder me from being baptized? Right? The the eunuch starts to ask these questions and it leads to further conversation. And so the approach to the chariot looked like us asking the questions. By the time we're we're, we're taking a seat, they're turning the the tables on us and, and they're starting to ask us questions about things in our lives. Right? The woman at the well riddled Jesus with questions. And it opened up profound spiritual dialogue with him. And as the Ethiopian eunuch asked some questions, they opened up profound spiritual dialogue with Philip as well. He says, how can I accept some man should guide me? Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? These are the questions that the Ethiopian eunuch asked. But for us, you know, it might not be that, that cut and dry. It might not be that clear. For us, the questions that, that they're asking might be, man, wh- why do you work so hard? Like, the boss is gone. Like, he, he's out for the day. Like, we could chill. Why are you still doing your job so well, you know? Hey, man, just relax. Hey, why is it that whenever we go out and, like, we all get smashed, like, you're still sober? Like, why, why, don't, why don't you drink when everybody else is partying? Right? Hey, I noticed that you stopped cussing. Like, dude, you used to have, like, a sailor's mouth, and now you're like, you don't cuss anymore? Like, why? You know? It might be these stupid questions, right, that people are asking. But, man, what's the answer? Oh, man, actually, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. I started going to church. I started reading my Bible. And and I met Jesus, and it changed everything. you you got to hear this. Have you ever heard the gospel before? Like, this is why my life looks different, right? Right? It it might look like like these questions. Why, Why don't you... Why don't you smoke weed with us anymore? Man, we used to get high together. It was so fun, right? Man, now, you know, you look different. You act different. You're hanging out with different people. How do you respond to these questions? Does your life look different? If so, it invites questions. Why? 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 Will we walk through these open doors? These are the open doors I'm talking about. These are the open doors that we're looking for. So often we pray for them. And then we never walk through them. We don't recognize them when they come. The nature of getting in the chariot looks like sitting with them. Right? Looks like sitting with them. Uh, Sitting is a lost art in today's culture. Right? But it's so important. Can you just be with someone? Right? Can you just sit? Uh, uh, Seated uh, position implies that they'd be at ease and comfortable. And, And as much as I want to be at ease and comfortable myself, the, the focus really more on the Ethiopian eunuch. We want him to, to be comfortable. We want him to be at ease as we have conversation. Remember, Philip was asked by the eunuch if he would sit with him. Uh, and so we must be willing to, to meet people where they're at. Philip got in his chariot, not the opposite way around, right? Are we willing to, to go out of our way to meet people where they're at? Uh, you know, instead of going to our favorite spot, are we willing to ask them, hey, what coffee shop do you like, right? Hey, wh- where's a convenient place for, for me to meet you? Are we willing to meet them where they're at? What's nice about this place, this setting, is that this eunuch, he was a big deal, right? He was the treasure to, to the Queen Candace of Ethiopia. 
And so you can imagine, you know, I've got a CFO at my company, not the, the treasurer to, to queen or king, but man, she stays busy, y'all, right? Always crunching numbers and stuff like that. And like to, to get a seat in her office, like she doesn't even turn to look at me. Like if we're talking, right, she's doing her own thing. What, what do you want, Miles? <laughs> no, I just wanted to ask you. Yeah, you should talk to Brian about that. You know, whatever, right? It's tough to get the CFO's attention, right? Like just to, to sit and have a casual conversation. This dude's a big deal in Ethiopia. And so you can imagine how many people would be vying for his attention. And the cool thing about being on this chariot is that they're in a place where they're seated and, and, and there's no opportunity for anybody to come in and out of his office to get his attention. That it, it was just them, right? They were seated together and they could have unhindered conversation about these spiritual matters, right? This is the beautiful thing about sitting together. There's no hurry. We're not in a hurry to go to the next thing. Let's sit, let's have a conversation, let's be together. And let's get into to, to meaningful conversation. There's no one vying for their attention. The, the chariot was a conducive space for intimate conversation. So you must think this through. In John chapter 4, the report is that the Samaritans uh, were, were coming to Jesus, and they besought him that he would tarry with them. And, and Jesus' response, right, he, he must needs go through Samaria. He's on his way. He's going somewhere. Samaria is not the final destination, and once he gets to Samaria, the people, they say, Jesus, would you just abide with us? Right? They, they met Jesus. They're so blown away by his teachings. They, they see that he is the Messiah. And, and they, they say, Lord, would you just tarry with us? And of course, Jesus obliges. And it says that he stayed with the people in Samaria for two days. Right? And the result of this was that many more believed because of his own words, the words of God. Are you willing to, to just take a seat, to slow down, to be with people, to meet them where they're at? The last method of an evangelist, and perhaps the, the most crucial, uh, is getting an open Bible. Getting an open Bible, right? We don't rely on miraculous methods, but on an open Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hebrews 4 tells us that this word uh, is just a tool to perform a spiritual surgery. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and can separate a man from himself. And so we must uh, learn to use this tool skillfully but remember, sharp tools can be just as damaging as they can be useful, right? And so we have to learn how to yield it. And so uh, really just in closing on the methods of an evangelist, uh, let's look at what it looks like to get an open Bible. And so first, the, the nature of getting an open Bible is to read the Bible, right? And that, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It sounds pretty reasonable, sensible. Um, but Brandon will point out, and I've come to, to learn uh, that Bible study doesn't always mean Bible study, right? Depending on who you're talking to, uh, you know, we're open and reading the Bible. Uh, not a spiritual book, not a spiritual commentary, but the very words of God. And again, this may seem straightforward, uh, but, you know, as I ask around, Bible studies are, are, are code word for for venting frustrations, for, for processing emotions and experiences, uh, for others to meet and discuss, you know, a, a book written by the latest and greatest Christian or spiritual author. But let's get straight to, to a Bible study requires Bible and, and studying it, right? Getting established with the Bible as the authority. 
We have to trust the word of God to do the work of God. And so we have to look for opportunities to open the Bible to see what it says over any given issue. Instead of, you know, when they ask, hey, man, I've been thinking, you know, about this or or that situation in my life, about my relationship with my girlfriend, about whatever, are you able to say, man, it doesn't matter what I think, can I show you what the Bible says, (laughs) right? It looks like getting an open Bible. I'll never forget whenever I landed at Midtown because of Brandon, uh, pretty quick, Dan swooped me up and invited me to his Bible study. And I was sitting in Bible study with guys like Alex and, and Blake and Uriah, and, and we just sat and we started going through the book of Romans. <laughs> and I start to learn doctrine. Like, oh, this is what happened at my salvation. Crazy. Like, it's crazy. Oh, I'm securing Christ. I can't lose my, my, my salvation. It's not based on my own works, but, but God is doing that work for me. He's keeping me. Like, these are big things, right? I'm reading the Bible, and it's reading me, and I'm like, wow, how did I miss this my whole life, right? So as evangelists, we have to get an open Bible, right? Next, we have to to take time and ask questions of comprehension. Take time and ask questions of comprehension. And this is tough, because you guys are are Bible wizards. You guys are a bunch of nerds in here, right? You, You guys know this book better than most. But we have to take time, and instead of blitzing through terms, we have to take time to define words, right? What does grace mean? You throw that around so casually, right? We speak these Christian terms and never really slow down to consider if people, man, do you even know what justification means, right? Do you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about salvation? Like, we have to slow down and define words. And we have to ask questions of comprehension. This allows others to discover truth for themselves. We want to make sure that people understand what they're reading, and we want them to learn to discover truth as they interact with the Word of God. And so as we open the book, man, we, we, we want to read the Bible. We have to actually slow down and ask questions of comprehension. Do you understand this? Do you understand? And, and lastly, the nature of getting an open Bible. We must preach the gospel. Right? We can't assume that someone's just going to come and through osmosis get saved. We can't just assume that they're going to peel over and, and, and say, you know, what must I do to be saved, right? We, we, we have to present good, life and good, and death and evil before them. Philip was able to take Isaiah 53, this passage from the prophets in the Old Testament, and preach Christ through it, right? We need to learn our Bible Can you preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Can you look at creation and and preach the gospel? Can you look at the fall of Adam and preach the gospel? Can you look at Abraham and Joseph and Moses and and Joshua and David and and preach the the Bible from these Old Testament passages? Me and Lisa and Lydia have been chatting about these cities of refuge. It's like, oh, man, it's so cool. Look at Numbers 35, these cities of refuge. Man, Christ is my refuge. That's where I, I found safety. Because actually, I'm the one that's guilty, right? I'm the one of guilty, and and I found my refuge in Christ. Can we take these obscure passages, maybe not so obscure, but can we we preach the gospel from the passages that we're in? Right? We should be skilled in the word. We should be able to find the gospel message in every page of this book. Right? Here in Acts 8, Philip met a man from Ethiopia. And this man was deeply religious, right? He was just leaving Jerusalem, worshiping God. 
He traveled from Ethiopia to, to Jerusalem to worship God. This man outwardly was a man of great status. He managed the, the, the treasury of the queen. Guys, we can look on this world, we can look at our friends, we can look at our family, and we can assume that they have it all figured out. We can think, man, they're polished, they're clean, they've got their life together, right? And forget that this Ethiopian eunuch, though he looked put together on the outside, he was in a desert and he was in need of water. And we can forget that this Ethiopian eunuch, he was a eunuch, right? He had no fruit in his life. He had no fruit in his life. We can forget that he was lonely and in need of company. We can forget that he was searching and in need of saving, right? We can look out at the people and assume that they've got it all together. You know, I think about so many of my clients at my store. They're millionaires, right? They can just, like, throw down on $100,000 watches like it's nothing. And I can assume, man, what, what could I ever share with them? How could I speak into their lives, right? And forget that these people are searching and in need of saving, We've been given the privilege and responsibility of preaching the gospel, and none of us are exempt from it. We must be obedient to the call. We must be willing to get in the chariot, and we must open the book because we can't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God in salvation, right? And so in closing, I'll just invite the, the worship team up. And I want to challenge you. Well... This message is for you, uh, right? So, so if you are in Christ, then, then I want to see you to see that the call on your life, the purpose of your life is to lay down everything in pursuit of Christ, right? And, and there's opportunity, no matter where you're at in your spiritual growth, for God to use you to speak into the lives of other people. It might look like come and see, but it might look like, man, will you open the Bible with me and let's see what God says about your problem, but we have to find opportunities in our day-to-day lives to, to be evangelists, right? Man, w- would someone know you as an evangelist, as the evangelist, right? And so as I close, I'd love to, to pray for you. Uh, but if you know that this is an area that you're struggling in and that you need to get accountable and growing in, uh, man, I'd love to invite you up front. It might look like getting paired for discipleship. If you're like, man, they, they've been talking about discipleship. I know that's a call in my life because I need to learn the book so I can apply it to people's life. Man, I'd love to invite you forward. We'd love to, to pray with you, but also to encourage you to take that step in actually signing up for Cost of Discipleship, right? And some of you might be here today and saying, man, you're talking about this good news, about this message that's worth going out of your way, getting uncomfortable to share, but I've never heard that. I've never, like this Ethiopian eunuch, put my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, Uh, Well, I'd love to invite you up front, too. I'd love to personally speak with you, uh, but we'll also have counselors up front that would love to to, to hear where you're coming from uh, and to share with you from the Word of God how you can know that you'll be saved for eternity, right? And so I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we get to praise the Lord. God, I thank you so much for the testimony of Philip. Uh, What a a mighty man of God, uh, and what a challenge to to all of us uh, to live a life that's not passive, Uh, but that's obsessed with your mission. Uh, You saved our soul, uh, and and you brought us here. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be fruitful, uh, that we'd prioritize you in everything that we do. Uh, And, Lord, that that, that ministry would multiply here, uh, that that, that we would take our our responsibilities and roles seriously within the church, uh, that would free up Pastor Brandon and Sam and the other pastors to be given to the work of the word and to prayer. 
Lord, we're trusting you for, for ministers to multiply in Kansas City. And so, Lord, we uh, thank you for what you've done, and, and we're trusting you for more. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.